Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe Weekly Podcast. Talking Joe's there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. Our podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the code name for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose, to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble But the podcast's on the air Talking Joe is there Talking Joe Talking Joe Talking Joe is on the air Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, a.k.a. The Funky Bunch, acting captain of USS Talking Joe. Welcome to Talking Joe Disavowed, part one. It's the first episode of our show is looking at the Devil's Due Run. Ooh, exciting. And joining me again on the poop deck, I said poop, it's the real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hi, Mark. Hi, everyone. Hey, nice to have you back. You weren't scared off by your first episode. Now I'm co-host. Hello, <laughs> hello to uh, hello to the tens of thousands of uh, new listeners who have come to the show simply because I told Facebook that I was now co-host of this show. Oh, you told Facebook, darn it! There's so many people on that. It's going to be a game changer, Tim. <laughs> And uh, and rounding out our crew for our uh, disavowed uh, coverage and ready to swab the deck. Whoa, Nelly, who's the co-presenter on the show today? We'll find out in just a minute. It's a beautiful day to have a guest. Time to talk to one of the best. Is he broken? Oh, can he be broken? We've had Ben, Chris and S-Job 2 a few episodes in. Away they flew. Broken. Oh, so Broken. We've always wanted to have a guest, just like you, like the Queen will ask. And what do you do? So let's make the most of this communique. Sorry to say it is for no pay. Hope he's good, but not too good. This I command, Serpentor. Come on, guys, eat mince pies. Let's meet the co-presenter. It's G.I.J. It's Jay Cordray. Hi, Joe fans. Uh, like Mark said, my name's Jay Cordray. Um, I'm a lifelong G.I. Joe fan. Uh, writer and artist myself, and uh, I'm going to keep it real short. I'm also the administrator of a Facebook page dedicated to my favorite artist, which is called Fans of Al Williamson. And uh, yeah, like I said, a lifelong fan, so I'm, I'm excited and ready to get into this. Cool. And where where are you from, Jay? I live in McConnellsville, Ohio, which is uh, about 80 miles southeast of Columbus, United States. Good stuff. And 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 how how long have you been into Joe? What was the oh. do you, do you have a moment that you remember where uh, you first uh, first encountered Joe and realized it was a lifelong love? Well, I first encountered it. Yeah, I'm not sure about the lifelong part. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, my very first figure was uh, Breaker, and I remember being with with my mom in Zanesville, and she bought um, Breaker and the Ram motorcycle for me at the same time. 
And mm. uh, that kind of did it. And, and a, a little personal thing, the card art on Breaker looks, at the time, looked like my, my Uncle Raymond, uh, the, the, the face <laughs> painting. So, you know, that made it, made it kind of personal for me. But yeah, I, uh, I had all those original figures. I think all of my original 13 are the straight arm. And basically, I had everything up through 1987. Cool. So you were right in at the beginning, uh, you know, yeah. 82. Uh. Yep. Excellent. And when did you first encounter the comics? Uh, my first comic was actually issue 18, which came out in December of 1983. Yeah. So it was a little a little after I had got the, uh, you know, got my first figures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And actually, that kind of plays into something else that we'll talk about later. So I don't want to get into it too much right now. Okay. Okay, but yeah, you've you've been there from the beginning, so that's uh, all good stuff. And uh, what's been going on in our in our weeks? I, my week, uh, I guess it's been dominated by by watching things. I think uh, other than other than work, I watched the film uh, Mother, which is a strange film. I think it's the strangest film I've I've ever watched. And and I, I don't want to give too much much away, but it's it's very dreamlike and. Start, starts you in almost gentle, thinking maybe this is a little bit of a spooky haunted house film or something, and, and then it just goes throw everything out uh, the the window, nutsoid, um, and and yeah, not sure, uh, yeah, somewhere between loving it and and hating it. Uh, so, <laughs> so I'm not quite too sure how I landed on because I like I like the ambition and I like the peculiarity of it and I like the way it, it captures the feeling of of a almost dreamlike sense of uh, peculiarity, but also just in terms of it being a, an understandable uh, linear, normal film with a, a clear understandable plot. Not, yeah, not so much. So, so yeah. And it looks nice, but, but, but yeah, it's, it wasn't quite what I was I- expecting. So, so yeah, very strange uh, experience. Have you, have, have you, either of you two encountered this one? No. What year was that? Uh, I think this was about 2017. And who's in it? It's uh, Jennifer Lawrence is the lead with... Oh, okay. Is it Javier Bardem, I want to say? Um, one of the... Uh, yeah, yeah, from uh, No Country for Old Men. I think that's, that's what, right. what it's yeah, called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, directed by Darren... I'm not going to be able to remember his name or say it pro- properly, but... Uh, Darren right, we know Aronofsky. who you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I... I I saw this when this came out because uh, I am interested in Darren Aronofsky as a director. I see his movies, and um, uh, this this movie didn't connect uh, with my my wife and I. Like the yeah. the trials that uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character uh, are is trials is are going through are, are <laughs> biblical, yeah. and we found it to be uh, not subtle enough. Like it's not torture porn. It's not the director or the movie makers enjoying terrorizing mm. these characters or hoping that the audience will salivate at their their terror and their like physical and emotional punishment. But very distressing, nonetheless. Yeah, uh, it's so. it's it's a fascinating film that I don't ever want to see again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've seen some like that. You're like, yeah, okay, I've seen it. Now I can be done with that. Cool. And uh, and I noticed Tim that you'd you'd updated your website over at a Real American Book with another very interesting uh, update and a piece of art that I've not seen before. Um, this time it was Rampart. So can you tell us more about that? 
Yeah, so again, not the package painting that we all saw at toy stores. This is the Hasbro internal presentation painting. Uh, so only people at Hasbro saw this, and this was used for every character to pitch the character to the higher-ups. Um, this was painted by James A. Payette, who I had a lot of difficulty finding anything about. Um, so uh, where he's going to show up in my book, it's probably going to be a half a sentence, which actually works out because um, he did these presentation paintings for G.I. Joe for about three years. But this was while other artists uh, like Dave Dorman and Bart Sears were doing these paintings. So his contribution to G.I. Joe is small and finite, um, but um, he's not a household name amongst Joe fans who know who worked at Hasbro because uh, his, his stuff has has barely surfaced, right? If you Google like G.I. Joe, James, A. Payette, you get like three images, um, one that sold at auction uh, and that one or two that have been, you know, reproduced in, in some books. Uh, so I'm trying to find out more about him, but I, I don't know that I will. Mm. I didn't know that Bart Sears or that Bart Sears ever worked on the, the property. Yeah, Sears was a figure designer. He did he did two he designed two figures. He designed some accessories for other figures. He did some of these presentation paintings, but he was quickly put on cops, which <laughs> if you if you talk to Hasbro employees, they'll often call cops and crooks. Um, but Sears designed the cops line uh, all three years, including that third year that didn't get make made. Yeah, I can see that now that now that you mention it, it definitely yeah, you, you just, looks just think a lot of, like his artwork. Yeah, you think of Big Boss's eyebrows, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's that's a Bart Sears drawing <laughs> as interpreted by a sculptor. I have a feeling was it Bart Sears did Rock and Roll version two? Is that am I remembering right? He contributed to it. Uh, I don't. I can't definitively say he was the designer. Okay, contributed then. <laughs> that was a nice figure. I really liked that that yeah. rock and roll. It was definitely one of those ones where it was a, a different take versus the version one, but, but one that, you know, was very much a success in its own right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not too sure how many of those I would be able to pluck out of my head where where you've, they've deviated to, you know, quite a significant extent from the look of the of the original, but, but have made, you know, an iconic figure that, that is, you know, that stands just just as well as or maybe even better than the uh, the version one figure yeah you can say that again <laughs> there should be a term for that because that's i feel like that's what i wanted for all of the figures you know three years later five years later in in the toys in the comics and the new animation if you're going to redesign a character there's sort of not redesigning it enough and there's redesigning it too much or there's mm -hmm giving this character something completely different to do and redesigning them too much. And then I don't really feel it's the same character anymore. And, and rock and roll, uh, you're right, Mark, that's, that's that, that's that sweet spot. Yeah. And maybe, maybe, maybe stalker as well that I don't know if it's version two, but the sort of the, t the tundra with the, the white puffer jacket, uh, that's, that's another one where they've gone in a completely different direction, but it's, you know, still really worked as a, as a look and as a toy design, but sort of, still feeling like it's retained the original kind of uh, vibe let's say of the of the version one stalker goes from detroit to southeast asia to alaska
<laughs> I think if uh, um, yeah, unlike Gung Ho, he's willing to stick on a coat. He's not. He's not proud man. <laughs> <laughs> he came with a kayak, right? Yeah. Even if the design doesn't work, that accessory is so undeniably great that uh, it's worth buying that toy. Yeah, the kayak was really neat. There we go. So that was Rampart. I always get him confused with Pathfinder for some reason. Go and check out the blog over at arealamericanbook.com to, to see that art. And uh, yeah, him in an action pose there doing what he is meant to do, which is defending the coast. Good stuff. Um, before we move on, I think we've got maybe just a couple of minutes to go inside my mind. So let's go inside Mac's mind. Woo! <laughs> so the the other thing that I have been w- watching this week is uh, on Netflix, Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. And this is one of these real-life sort of crime mysteries, um, very much in the vein of uh, the successful Don't F with Cats, which uh, I think was came out earlier in, in the year. Very intriguing kind of disappearance mystery occurring at, at this uh, hotel in LA with a, a bit of a uh, strange and spooky backstory to the to the hotel. So quite a fascinating story going in and some really well put together couple of first and second episodes building the mystery, but falling completely flat in episodes to uh, so three and four and i just felt like yeah i would like four hours of my life back please <laughs> at the end of it it felt like uh the the mystery as it was really wasn't such the mystery that they were building it out to be and could really be summarized in the space of five minutes without losing too much that's my mind uh emptied was that based on a true story mark it's it's a true story documentary with uh, lots of talking heads unveiling oh, okay. this mis- this uh, mystery of uh, this disappearance uh, that happened at this strange uh, hotel called the cecil hotel in skid row in la um, interesting story interesting background interesting history but sure to please thank you <laughs> Yeah, you, you never want something to just drag out, like you yeah. said, where you feel like, okay, this could have been done two hours ago. Absolutely, yes, indeed, and uh, yeah, too many of this, t- yeah, too much repetition, too much, too much reusing of the the same sort of stock footage and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I'll move on. I'll move on. It's it's interesting, but not a recommend from me. I'm afraid. I don't know about you two, but I'm ready to talk some comics from Devil's Due. Absolutely, let's get into it. Yes, yes, yes. We're gonna talk about coming from Devil's Jew. It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do. I guess we'll explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh, oh. So uh, normally in these shows, we're going to be aiming to at pace cover an arc or so of the story. So, uh, you know, however much that takes, whether that's a couple of issues or uh, four or so and uh, move along at clip. Uh, But because this is the first issue and there's a lot of context around that that's worth discussing, we're just going to be covering issue one of uh, the Devil's Due book from Image. And I thought I'd just lay out some of the 
the context of where we were at the at the time when this came out in 2001 and and where we'd traveled from so over in the in the comics uh, we'd had marvel gi joe issue 155 concluding the series in uh, december 1994 and then subsequently, not too much longer afterwards, Dark Horse launched a series called G.I. Joe Extreme, uh, which ran from 1995 to September 1996 and was a tie-in to the that same toy. That It was a tie-in to, to the toy that was coming out at the same time. Um, there was a comic then from Bench Press that they tried to launch and, and revitalize and relaunch the G.I. Joe Real American Hero brand with uh, Larry Hammer at the, the helm. Uh, and that didn't get uh, past a couple of sample pages being produced. So that fell apart in 1999. And um, there was an enthusiasm that was building for, for the G.I. Joe characters. And it was foreshadowed by an article in uh, the very influential Wizard issue 111, which came out in December 2000. And uh, Wizard, as you'll know, was it was the preeminent fan magazine of the day. You know, when they were commissioning articles, they would, alongside it, commission popular artists to produce you know, renditions to, to make those articles more interesting. And they ran in this this, uh, this particular issue a special all about kind of nostalgic properties that might perhaps come come back. And uh, in the in the issue, they included pieces from. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, as in, as interpreted by Joe Maduera, who was a hot artist off of uh, the Uncanny X-Men. We had G.I. Joe, penciled by J. Scott Campbell, and Transformers by Pat Lee, who would go on to form Dreamwave and acquire the Transformers license a couple of years later. And in the uh, G.I. Joe article, as I say, it was uh, accompanied by this you know wonderful splash, splash image from J. Scott Campbell. Uh, and they, they speculated on how it could be relaunched. They uh, they put forward Greg Rucker as the writer, which I think was a great choice. And actually, when we talked about who might uh, be a good choice to relaunch GI Joe, Greg Rucker was the name that that I suggested would uh, be a very good uh, fit. Um, so so that was kind of what's happening in the background with with the the comics. And over in the world of toys, the main line stopped in 1994. Then we then we had Sergeant Savage joining uh, shortly after 1994-95, and then Extreme in 96-7 or 95 up to seven. And there were some modest store exclusives for the Real American Hero line, uh, but was mostly based on the reuse of existing molds, and we didn't see a proper relaunch until 2002 when Hasbro decided to go all in on a new line of Joes called G.I. Joe versus Cobra with new sculpts from head to toe and very much uh, with lots of synergies into the comics of the time from from G.I. Joe. So um, there was quite a big gap really in both in terms of um, toys and comics for, for that proper nostalgic uh, G.I. Joe brand, you know, a gap of five, six uh, years, really. So when Devil's Due launched, it was tapping into this this wave of nostalgia that, that probably most people didn't quite recognise or realise might be there. And uh, they had a preview in 2001, followed shortly by issue one in, in September 2001. And the first issue of the revamped G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, from Devil's Due, published through Image, went on sale September 12th, 2001. So 
in terms of timing, this we're talking here about the day after nine uh, eleven, so quite a, a strange time oh, to wow. be uh, having a, an, an issue one of particularly this book uh, landing, and uh, yeah, assembling this issue, the creators had no way of knowing that their their comic about America's daring, highly trained special mission force would debut a day after the deadliest terrorist attack in American history. But orders of the revamped G.I. Joe were very good and enough that uh, Devil's Due, who had initially announced a four-issue miniseries, were able to pretty much immediately after announce that that this would actually be uh, an ongoing and start even thinking about potential spin-offs Whew. a lot of a lot going going on in terms of uh, the brand and you can kind of see why why people were hungry for it there's a little bit more context worth mentioning that josh blaylock who wrote this new comic and was also the president of a devil through publishing the the company that that had the gi joe license blaylock had previously made gi joe T-shirts. He yes. had he had licensed from Hasbro, uh, GI Joe, and I think Transformers and maybe some other brands. I don't remember. Um, but he had sold official GI Joe T-shirts that got, got into stores, and there were some there were one or two other things, and I don't remember what they were. But I want to say buttons or pins or like uh, those things that make your car smell good that you hang from the uh, rearview mirror. But that kind of thing. But it was basically let's just say. Uh, t-shirts and if you feel like it's a it's a leap to go from t-shirts to comic books blaylock had been making comics and what this really speaks to is a business relationship with hasbro that hasbro wanted to make a deal with someone who understood licensing right like i'm going to protect your brand while i present it in a way that's different than how you present your brand, right? Hasbro makes toys, Hasbro knows toys. Hasbro doesn't make t-shirts, Hasbro doesn't make books, they don't make sleeping bags. So, you know, they license out these uh, characters and brands to companies that do. So there was already a relationship. And so Blaylock could bring uh, some confidence to this arrangement. It's like, well, we've, we've worked well together so far. Why don't I also acquire the license to G.I. Joe comic books? Yeah, and and it was, it was that kind of ex- background in the, um, the licensing for the likes of um, T-shirts that um, that made him realize that that he was onto a, a good thing because there was a, an enormous appetite for these brands for the the license or Transformers uh, T-shirts and the GI Joe T-shirts and and those kind of things that that he had already been putting out there into the market and one of the reasons that that he picked G.I. Joe by the sounds of things was that Transformers was the bigger brand. It was the more active brand. And he realized that going for, for G.I. Joe would be the the easier, the easier sell in terms of acquiring the the license as a relatively young unknown, you know, that it's a less of a bet and less of a, you know, whereas the the, the Hasbro brand, uh, the the Transformers brand, was more was more active and probably would have been more protected. Also, well, I think it goes to show how um, how much of a desire there is for these characters. Like you said, they're um, you know they had the the Wizard article, and I think Tim said the other day that you, your average 
consumer might not know about Snake Eyes' story, but they see Snake Eyes and, and they know him, you know, in the same kind of way that a lot of people are familiar with Wolverine. And they say, oh, well, that's, that's Wolverine. You know, that's Snake Eyes. And I think that that's, that was always kind of there, you know. So bringing it back in, in 2001, I, you know, it doesn't seem to me like, like a huge gamble for them. I think that it was just, you know, the, the ARH book had gone and not just the book, but but the line of toys had gone so far away from the original concept that people kind of lost interest in it. So bringing it back and, and kind of paring it down to its its beginnings was uh, probably a welcome return for a lot of people. Yeah, and I th- and I think as well, it's sort of the the approach was that the, the people who were going to buy this book weren't necessarily the the same target audience in the way that they would have marketed it back in 1982 or whenever it was that that the issue one launched. I think the thought process there was, you know, we're digging into a nostalgic vibe here. When there there isn't a an active toy that's being promoted heavily to uh, to to five year olds, uh, there isn't a TV show, you know, there. The, the people who are going to and and the comic market is a very different place as as well in two thousand and one versus the early eighties. The people that are going to buy this comic uh, are they going to be the people who read it. As kids themselves, so so they're going to be in their mid twenties for the, for the most part. The the people who who were buying the the figures and the toys in the mid in the mid mid eighties, and now it's almost twenty years uh, twenty years on, and they're you know they're wanting to recapture some of the some of the joy that they had from from that experience when when they were younger. Yeah, it's definitely a, a nostalgic property written towards an now older audience. That's how when you have lines. Yeah like shipwreck talking about going to, I think it was Flint's aunt's wedding and throwing up margaritas or something on her. We wouldn't have had that in, you know, the first several issues of the original run. But now that we were, you know, at that time, what, 30, you know, we can mm. laugh at those things because we've hopefully not thrown up on anybody's aunts, but you know, we've, we've had those kind of experiences by that point. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a very interesting, uh, in- interesting observation. You're right. That That's definitely not, not the sort of thing that would have been referenced in the, in the original run. And, and is more of a, a wink to the kind of experiences of a, a more mature audience. Okay, so let's get into the issue itself. So we're looking at issue one of the Devil's Due reinstated uh, arc from September 2001. The creative team were story and layouts, Josh Blaylock, pencils, Steve Kurth, inks, John Larta, and colors from Hi-Fi Design. So Hi-Fi Color Design was Color Studio, co-founded by Brian Miller and his wife, uh, Kirsty, as a studio focusing very much on the emerging digital colours of the time. Edits were Scott Whirl and cover A artist was J. Scott Campbell uh, with back cover by David Michael Beck. Let's jump in and discuss the covers. Favourite cover... I like the Campbell cover a lot. I mean, it's if you're a fan of Campbell, it's it's definitely something that's going to appeal to you. You know, his characters are, are pretty cartoony. Um, if you have the book, mm-hmm. it's kind of a retrospective of his artwork. Even includes a lot of stuff that he did in high school. So you see his development where he he kind of uh, Mort Drucker, you know, Mad Magazine that that really influenced his style with a lot of caricature kind of stuff. Uh, but the the cover I think is great. Uh, my only one little little tiny nitpick would be um, mm-hmm. I don't like Roadblock having an earring. Uh, <laughs> I do like that he that he doesn't 
put uh, shipwreck in his you know traditional sailor's outfit and he just kind of has the sweater and we see that look carried out through the rest of the book too yeah for sure um the the roadblock one is an interesting one yeah i wasn't i definitely wasn't a fan of that at the time but i wondered whether whether it was potentially a bit of a, a reference to uh, the version four roadblock where they did introduce uh, an earring i think it was on a different on a different ear but, um, yeah. yeah, it's not the first time that he's had some ear decoration. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, this uh, J. Scott Campbell, it's after Michael Golden and uh, that reference being to his yearbook to cover. So the particularly, you know, the, the composition you know, is, is pretty similar. We've got we've got snake eyes down at the, the, the front. Um, the I think the biggest the biggest carryover probably is actually the background where where there's that big uh, American flag in the in the background, which is. Um, you know, very much a, 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 you know, a complete carryover from from that design. Um, but yeah, if you're going to reference the cover, it's a it's a good one to to pick. I think that um, I like J. Scott Campbell's GI Joe work, and he bridges the world of animation and the world of comics because there is so much cartooniness in his artwork. Um, his poses are kinetic. He has a lot of uh, he has total accuracy in the technical stuff, right? Like these these weapons all look real and convincing. Mm-hmm. Um, this cover, um, the characters are very close together. And I know that comic book covers are an exaggeration of what's happening inside, or sometimes it's just a shot of Spider-Man or Batman on a rooftop, and it's just like a glamour shot or a portrait. Um, and that... You know, there's no moment in the story where these seven Joes are standing and one, two, three, four, five, six Joes are standing on and in front of a flag. That said, um, they're so close together. I've always been a little distracted that this feels like a photographer has these six people stand and then says like, no, 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 Flint, like put put your shoulder against Roadblock's shoulder, <laughs> right? No, no, no. Uh, uh, Scarlet, move move your elbow closer to Snake Eyes' head. And like the the sentence like they wouldn't stand that way normally, like that doesn't make sense and it's not helpful. Um, but it's for a po- for a cover that where sort of no action is happening, it's just like a glamour shot, it's really busy. Um, mm-hmm. I also think that the first issue of a new series doesn't need to reference an existing cover. I think that that's fun and it's recognizable and like a cover swipe or a cover homage is not the same thing as like remaking a movie or remaking a song, but like, Hey, J. Scott Campbell, Josh Blaylock, this is your chance to create an iconic image that would forever represent this new version of GI Joe. Like must it like so carefully reference an existing image from G.I. Joe. That said, I think the drawing's great. One last thing. I mean, I think it's it's different enough that it's not a standard homage. It's that it's they're all in different positions. The the characters used are fifty percent different. Let's say. Um, well, and so, your camera's a lot closer to the characters too on the, on the yeah, camera. Yeah, yeah. So so while there's a lot of the DNA of of Golden there an inspiration, it's it's a very different image, and I think it has it was able to quickly create its own iconic image and it's it's sort of you know almost it's almost like the mission statement of the book in terms of 
you know that not like that's that nostalgic background there and being informed by what's becoming before but but you know having a modern twist to it and, and still you know being its own thing that's a good point so snake eyes and um shipwreck all of snake eyes and shipwrecks hat and uh sweater the line work is inverted right so if you if you draw a character who's gonna be completely in black mm. If you have a black outline, you lose the black outline because the black mm-hmm. fill touches it. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes a character like Snake Eyes is actually colored in dark gray, dark purple, dark blue. Um, so one solution with digital coloring and digital tools is you highlight that black outline and then you actually color it in some other color like gray. Yeah. Um, and I think that works for some things when J. Scott Campbell like draws Spider-Man and the webbing is not gray fill with the black outline but sort of white outline and you get the sense that it's shiny and silky and translucent um sometimes broken glass is colored this way in comics uh, i think that works uh and i think this does work and there's really no problem with it but what i see in this uh, approach is an inconsistent treatment of line and color and as an art guy i find it a little distracting <laughs> I think it works better on Shipwreck's sweater than it does on Snake Eyes, but that's just me. I mean, it's not. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have picked up on that per se. And it's yeah, an interesting observation. I think it's probably really, as you say, only an effect that is is achieve achievable because they've got digital colors happening. If it uh, if it hadn't been for that, where they could do these line holds, that they would probably be having to go a slightly different route in in terms of trying to create that that effect and the and the pop on on snake eyes blacks of his uh, costumes judge going by the the original line art to that image it looked it looks like probably j scott campbell just didn't use any blacks himself in terms of uh, the the solids that uh, that would probably would have been left to the inca to achieve not the inca the uh, the colorist to achieve all of all of that just purely basing it on the on the uh, his penciled version of, of that same cover but uh, i have i see i don't think i've ever seen the pencil f- or the original artwork for it it's uh it's included in the convention special which oh. has got um some sort of behind the scenes sort of designs and and it yeah includes the first few pages of the issue in black and white and also the the pencils to the uh to this cover i have one last nitpick uh, <laughs> and this is a rule for all gi joe logo types right the angle of the italization or italicization the italics of, <laughs> of gi joe the words under it a real american hero need mm-hmm. to have the same amount of italics mm. so you you yeah you like they, the, the lines to be parallel so the re, the l of the real is uh, is parallel to the i of the joe for example yes and i'm oh, sorry yeah i of gi joe above it and uh, and there are some there are some small irregularities in the black outline of the word GI Joe, where at the at the tail end of the E, it's a little thick and thin. And uh, I'd, <laughs> I like this cover. It it needs needs the needs another pass on graphic design. <laughs> okay. That Let's might have a- possibly have been drawn by hand. I've seen uh, some artists do the actual logos like that, you know, right onto the cover. So, I mean, that could explain why the black on the E is a little thicker at the top than at the I th- bottom. I, I think by 2001, particularly that, that all the lettering in the book is computer. Uh, mm-hmm. I think certainly this logo is is Photoshop or Illustrator. It's, 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 it was made in Adobe and it was certainly traced 
from an earlier GI Joe logo. Okay, let's move on to the back cover because I think it's worth calling these out. We've got David Michael Beck um, with a painted rendition of, of Snake Eyes, which um, was, I think, used as the second printing uh, for, for this issue. And yeah, almost, I'd, I'd say, an instantly iconic uh, image, which... Uh, seems to have inspired, um, I think, some of the uh, some of the images used of Snake Eyes in the the movie, uh, which came out a few years uh, later. And yeah, David Michael Beck. I don't think he was a particularly familiar name, but uh, was a, it seem, sounds like he was a budding, uh, a sort of sorry, a um, a jobbing uh, local artist to uh, Josh Blaylock, based in Cincinnati. And uh, yeah, he was really uh, wowed by his stuff in his style and. and uh, you know, as part of that, asked that he provide uh, some these back covers for the the first few issues. I hadn't heard of him, and he his his website bio says that he he started his career in 1972, and I think wow. he was I think he was new to comics because uh, so I hadn't heard of him, and I hadn't seen his work before. But uh, at the end of this G.I. Joe comic book, the final page is an ad for another book that Image is publishing, and it has a cover by David Michael Beck. And this uh -huh. ad says, uh, featuring two covers, sci-fi legend David Beck. So uh -huh. some people out there knew him. Um, Enough people to, to call him a legend. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It's not bad. I like it. Yeah. He, he was described by um, Josh Blaylock as... As being a you know an older artist, I think he said he was in his fifties. Well, well, he was sort of starting out as a young whippers, whippersnapper and was sort of like <laughs> you know very kind of uh, you know fatherly and and sort of offering advice and and all of these things to these guys who were starting out. So yeah, as you say, sort of a bit a bit of a generational uh, difference there. It's always exciting in comics when someone, an editor or an art director, springs for paint because. Mm. Um, painters get paid more or, or at least they traditionally have and they should because mm -hmm. you know it takes longer um, and and a painted cover or back cover adds a certain heft that a line drawing does not you know you think of like he-man storybooks from the 80s or Conan paperbacks from decades past so I, I love the idea that that it just a GI Joe comic book can have a fully painted cover uh, or back cover this image has never quite grabbed me, and um, I think Beck's technique, his his textures are are really pretty. I think here and there, I'm I'm a little confused by sort of the, a change in color or a contour. Like I'm not quite sure if I'm looking at a muscle or not quite a, a clothing fold because Snake Eyes is wearing a, a tight suit. I think some of the sort of icing on the cake of this, right, like the chrome of his visor and his sword, uh, the coolness of the pose, right, he's quiet, he's deadly, he's got his sword. I think some of those things get more attention than uh, some of the anatomical foundation underneath. Yeah, I'm not sure what's going on with that tricep, but I think that it looks pretty good. I mean, I think it's somebody that's probably not necessarily real familiar with the property, you know, uh, a, a bigger Joe fan might have done some things differently, like no idea what that is on Snake Eyes' wrist uh, or his forearm, for that matter. Uh, but you know, the sword handle that he's holding looks really nice. The one that's on his back looks really nice. So he's definitely somebody that uh, is very talented. Yeah, I think that thing that looks like a, a watch is his 
brand new communicator and you'll see it on the uh, on the front cover as well as part of the the redesign i also want to give uh credit to josh blaylock for hiring david michael back to do back covers for this whole yeah. arc and he then became a sort of back cover artist or cover artist for other devils do gi joe comics you know we all like the consistency of a recurring artist in comics whether it's the cover artist or the interior artist mm -hmm. and um, though there are things that I, I might do differently if, if I could paint and I can't. Um, so I just, you know, like it's, it's easy, it's easy to criticize, right? Like, right. Like this image isn't as, isn't as the way that I want it to be. Right. It's like, I, I can't do this. I can't do the, the texture, the, the wall behind him. I can't do the chrome of the sword, but I'm right uh, there with you. That, that Beck kept coming back and that Blaylock had him and that, rather than putting a, an ad on the back cover for some other devil's due project or some other image comic, right? Like you're, you're, you're making less money if you just hire an artist and put a new piece of art on the back cover rather than run an ad there. And I've always appreciated that decision because a comic book should be special, but the back cover is the most valuable advertising real estate. Yeah. Very good. Very good point. It sort of speaks to, I guess the the love that they had of the of the brand, and I guess the the willingness to in, invest a you know the the time, money, and energy into into making making it look uh, uh, you know a little bit more special than it would have otherwise be. So uh, now we've done the covers, let's jump on in the inside and start with a plot breakdown. In the Florida Everglades, Kamakura spies on the Dreadnought compound, and Snake Eyes uploads the intel that has been gathered. Double O Duke gathers a team of Joes and shows surveillance photos showing Cobra Commander back in action on domestic soil. And that as a result, the G.I. Joe team is reinstated and the call is made out to the former Joes. While Roadblock, Flint and Shipwreck catch up on old times, Scarlet and Snake Eyes have a tense moment where Scarlet slaps Snake Eyes. It's revealed that Snake Eyes left Scarlet three weeks before they were due to be married. Back at the Dreadnought compound, Cobra Commander unveils the nanomachines to the Cobra High Command. Later, Cobra Commander retires to his quarters where some females wait for him. A woman. But Destro's General Lillian is one of them, and she attacks Cobra Commander. We end on a cliffhanger as Destro enters and has the Crimson Guardsmen take Cobra Commander captive. Dun dun dun! I was a little surprised to see Cobra Commander go into a room with two women in it like that. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an observation <laughs> that I had as well. It seems out of character. We've not, as far as I can remember, not really had a comparable scene in the original Larry Hammer run of, um, you know, Cobra really seeming to be bothered by the uh, opposite sex, to be honest. Yeah. Or anyone. G.I. Joe is... No, no, I, I mean, not... It's not, true. I mean, you know, like, there, there's a little bit of... There's romance between uh, Snake Eyes and Scarlet, and there's some romance between Destro, Baroness, and Flint, and Lady J, but most of it is off-panel, and mm -hmm. G.I. Joe is is the, sort of the overall story and brand. It's pretty platonic. Mm -hmm. So any scene where anyone walks into a room and there's sort of this, like, moment Booker. of... 
yeah, this moment of, <laughs> of, of seduction, someone with, uh, with uh, the, the sex of their desire, right? Like, yeah. we've, just, we've just never seen that. So the scene feels uh, very new to G.I. Joe. Yeah. Let's get on to art. So <laughs> uh, we've got Josh Blaylock uh, on layouts and Steve, Kerr, Steve Kerr's on, on pencils with, with inks by John Larter. What I did, I don't think I, I appreciated at the time that, that that Josh Blaylock was actually doing the layouts as well as the uh, as well as writing the thing as as well. So yeah, a little bit of uh, an auteur there. I mean, his his style is naturally quite um, simplistic and cartoony. Um, so so I think he probably appreciated that he wouldn't necessarily have the the chops on his own to quite carry off uh, GI Joe if he was going to do full pencils him himself. Uh, but also realistically being able to have the the time to do to do that on, on top of uh, everything uh, else. Yeah, what did we think of the I guess the the look of the thing? I've never seen any of Blaylock's uh, pencils. I think the layouts, for the most part, are pretty good. And Kurth does a lot of stuff that's really good, like when he's drawing um, buildings, and and sometimes the machinery looks really good. And mm-hmm. one of the the issues that we're going to hit later. I think it's with the first page you see like three or four cityscapes that look really good. But the faces in this were a huge problem for me to get through, especially the women's faces. Just seemed to be a lot of time very skewed and it really, it was really jarring. Yeah, so interesting you pick on particularly the women's face because he's got these, these sort of, these high sort of cheekbones are very sort of defined. He's got sort of the lines coming around to do, sort of draw it down through to the to the chin. And if you look at sort of particularly Baroness, who's you know a bit of a, a sort of typically portrayed as a bit of a, a bombshell look, you know, cover uh, you know quite often like to be featured as a variant cover because of uh, the sex appeal. She she's drawn in quite a strange sort of almost insectoid way with with a very kind with with strange kind of bulgy glasses and a, a very pointy kind of chin yeah that first image of her on the monitor is oh it's i don't even have the word for it tim what do you think (laughs) i i i had problems i can't read this book without flashing back to september 2001 when i first read this book and i was so excited because a lot of great decisions had been made like let's bring back a gi joe comic we'll start with a miniseries uh, J. Scott Campbell does the cover. We are continuing the story from before. Um, and, and actually, you know, uh, actually, what what I hadn't mentioned before as well is that that Devil's Jew had very successfully, you know, been working on the social medias back when this, you know, that was a still pretty new kind of thing that that they had the uh, a web a very professional website, very active message boards, and really building up quite a large sense of anticipation for for this book and really you know all of those people sort of rediscovering the brand ch- ch- talking about uh, their favorite toys from before and your yeah, favorite m- memories from the marvel uh, books and, and speculating about what might be to come um there you know it helped sort of fuel that i don't know if you were particularly active on, on any of that at the time either of you but um it i i was quite fairly active on the on the devil's due boards uh, in the run-up and, and sort of first few few issues coming out. And yeah, it did really sort of create that sort of sense of anticipation. 
I'll, I'll just say the word cheekbones. Um, Steve Kurth's art um, was disappointing to me at the time, and I had a strong reaction to it. And I will continue this thread in another episode of this podcast. But after reading this issue, I wrote a letter and sent it in to the, the publisher and the editor uh, to be continued. Uh, I want to hold off until issue three. <laughs> I, want, I, want, I want to lure listeners back to a okay. future episode. But what I will say is that um, Steve Kurth is doing a little cartooning here and there. Like when he draws Destro's head, he's exaggerating. He's got yeah. um, wide lips and a, a, a wide chin and his eyes are set far apart and his cheekbones are really far apart. But it, it doesn't look realistic. Uh, his cheekbones look like... It's like an exaggerated sculpture of a skull, not, you know, a person, not a head, not a mask. And the good news is that as as much as I disliked the art at the time, Steve Kurth, many years later, came back to draw G.I. Joe comics and did really spectacular work. And in between, he drew some, uh, he drew an Ultimate Iron Man miniseries from Marvel, where he was very much channeling brian hitch and uh oh, there's, wow. a, there's a pinup and I, I can't remember quite where it is but it's it's in the first uh year or two of devil's due on gi joe but kurth drew a double splash gi joe transformers crossover pinup and there he's very much channeling sort of an earlier brian hitch when hitch's stuff looked more like alan davis and less mm-hmm. like sort of the modern brian hitch who's more photorealistic who drew the ultimates um, but, um, Kurt's anatomy, uh, isn't quite there. And I, I, I wished that at the time that Blaylock had either hired a, a, a different artist or worked more with, uh, Kurt to do some revisions. Um, the storytelling is, is clear and, and I can follow the story. Although there is there, the, the panel where Kamakura hands the, um, the the data disc to snake eyes um is is sort of oddly composed because unless you see a tiny fingertip and a tiny little triangle in the top left corner of the panel you actually don't see kamakura handing this data disc to snake eyes you just see snake eyes sitting there holding his arm up for no reason and then the next two panels the thing that snake eyes is doing walking away with the data disc the data disc is like a half a millimeter large in these very small panels so um yeah I like, but I like some, that... some good li- some good heavy lifting done by the colorist to actually isolate that and make it make it pop so that you you can you can see it if you're if you're you know looking hard enough. <laughs> it would have been very easy to miss that. Um, one one last thing about one last thing about Kurth and Larder um, in terms of anatomy, um, not just sort of chins and faces, but there are a lot of extra lines on like uh, temples and cheekbones and cheeks that don't quite correspond to anatomy or wrinkles or shadows and uh it is a it is a sign of artists who are still learning that they'll put in a lot of stuff because it either looks cool or it sort of distracts from a lack of foundation and i think of someone like sort of the opposite of this like mike parabek who drew three years of batman adventures the comic based on the the cartoon his art is so unadorned, he never hides behind sort of style and flash. And I think of someone like 
Jay Lee when he broke into comics drawing um, Namor for Marvel and then Youngblood Strike File for Rob Liefeld, his his pages had like all this really exciting visceral like ink lines and splatters and textures. But what he was really doing is sort of showing that he like didn't have confidence in drawing locations and anatomy. And I see a little of that here sort of in every line on like an eyebrow or a forehead or, or a cheek. The art here is, it's pretty good. It needs a lot of work. Agreed. Yeah, I got that. Um, but but sort of yeah, thinking about the the layout as well, which would have you know would have been from from Blaylock, they are packing in a lot of story. There there is a lot of panels on on almost every page. There's the the one where they make out the call to to the various Joes to to get them back into the into the team. Uh, you know, concluding on uh, the call to Bazooka, and I think there's thirteen panels on on that page, and on on all but. Uh, a few splashier images there you know you're looking at you know at least five six seven panels per per page so so they are they're sort of fitting in a lot of our a lot of uh storytelling into into the to the book and uh yeah sort of pushing it along it feels like they're sort of covering a fair amount in a in a single issue it is a lot and that page in particular that you're talking about where they make all the phone calls i mean you know like Tim said some of the faces, you know, aren't that great. I think, you know, like I said, Blaylock does really nice layouts. I think he's got that set up really well. It's it works, and you know, I give him credit for for being able to get that much stuff on one page. Yeah, and it looks like Puck from Alpha Fight is uh, is joining the GI Joe type team as as well from that page. So that's quite exciting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hold on, that's Gung Ho, right? Yeah. <laughs> My favorite was when we get to Bazooka and he's all heavy and then later they say that he couldn't pass the physical. Mm, yeah, a lot changes over five years. But actually for Bazooka, this is, this sort of touches on another point for this this comic that it's almost as equally inspired by the cartoon as by the comics. Because in the in the comics, Bazooka featured um in, you know, a one uh, a one issue, one and done, where where they're fighting the bats with um yeah where the this the issue where the bats uh, first revit is is this a cover that you've actually got Tim you own do you own that cover for that uh, issue forty four with Lady J yeah 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 it's on my wall beautiful cover and is Bazooka in that one um, that's got Bazooka airtight and Frank Case anybody wait else? I'm, wait I'm sorry I'm thinking of the Mike oh, Lady J cover. Yeah, Lady J's on the Silver Mirage and she's looking over her yeah. shoulder and there's a an, an 18 wheeler. Lady J's training the the new Joes in in the issue. Yeah, apart from that, and even that issue doesn't feature Bazooka <laughs> with enormous degree of uh, deep dive into his character or anything. You know, he just appears in a couple of places like in the Invasion of Springfield and and whatnot. He's not really developed. So, yeah. But he was never in, a major in the character. Yeah, but whereas in in the com whereas in the cartoon, you know, he's in there quite a lot and he's got a bit of a uh, a sort of a comedy double act with him and Quick Kick, right? Tim, you'll be Alpine. able to talk. Is it Alpine? Yeah. Al- Alpine and... Not no, Alpine. Alpine and Bazooka, right, oh, Tim? Al- oh, right, okay. Yeah, I, Mark, I think what you're picking up on here is that this page where we check in with, with nine of ten Joes coming out of retirement is that the punchline is on Bazooka. Yeah. Because not only is he uh, out of shape, but he... He's, he's bold. Not, yeah, he's bald, and also he's not—he's not, he's not um, slow-witted or dumb. But I feel like there's sort of this implied, you know, stalkers playing basketball, and uh, <laughs> Dusty's been redeployed to a, a desert, and 
Jinx is in the middle of uh, Tokyo and this there this tiny panel, there's all this information, there are all these neon lights behind her. And Bazooka is just sitting, he's sedentary, right? And he runs mm-hmm. uh, security, right? So one way of playing this is like, oh, he has his own company. He's a success after leaving G.I. Joe. And the other is, wah, wah, he's bald, he's obese. And yeah, he's his... became Paul Blart Mall Cop. Yeah. Um, this, this actually gets into a point sort of an overall point. I know, I know we're still talking about the art, but I at the time, I thought it was really cool to move ahead seven years and to refer to the fact that the Joes did other things and now they had to come back. And maybe they had to give up things, right? Like Stalker has to leave his family and go back to work, right? And the implication is that he didn't have a family in the previous comics. And this reminds me a little bit of the uh, two-parter uh, there's no place like Springfield where we jump ahead a few years and G.I. Joe has been disbanded and the Joes uh, have moved on. Um, similarly, on the Cobra side, Zartan, right there in the first few pages, uh, there's dialogue that refers to, uh, you know, everyone's older, uh, the Dreadnoughts have expanded, and uh, Zartan's eyesight isn't as good as it used to be, and quote, like due to his skin condition. Uh, which is like a sideways reference to his toy, which turned blue in sunlight. And what I realize now in rereading this comic with a different perspective is that I now disagree with the decision to move ahead seven years. And I just, I like, and my, my analogy is The Simpsons, right? Where the show's been on for years and every week they have some adventures and they learn something. And some things do change, right? Like in early episodes, they didn't have computers or smartphones, and now they do. But, you know, Bart's still in whatever it is, fourth grade. And I'm actually not interested in The Simpsons aging in real time, or even a little bit. I don't want there to be uh, like a season where they jump ahead 10 years and Bart is in uh, high school, because that's not the Bart that I know. And the Marvel G.I. Joe comic that ran for 155 issues and its continuation now, which is run for another 100 plus, um, time progresses, right? Like, you know, they don't refer to Vietnam anymore as a war. They refer to sort of the Southeast Asian conflict um, because it's not just five or 10 years out. Um, and, And some characters have aged a little bit, right? Like Throwdown. But it's basically still the Joes, and you have this sort of mixture of time where, what time is it? It's now. Have the Joes <laughs> been fighting Cobra for a long time? Yes. Are they getting older? No. And that's actually what I want, because this stuff with Zartan getting older and Bazooka getting obese, it makes me sad. <laughs> and I don't want to read about these characters like getting older, right? Like, oh, my, like going up these stairs at Joe headquarters is sure different now that I'm 38, not, you know, 28. Like, <laughs> like that makes oh, for, grand that, makes, of 38. that yeah. makes for a punchline, but it adds something to G.I. Joe that I don't think should be there. Um, not only are they getting older, but several of them have children. You know, um, Zanya is in here. And my first question was, who, who's her mom? You know, you, and like you said, you see Stalker playing basketball with, with his kids. Uh, there's another child that's in here of a major character that I won't spoil anything in case anybody's reading along and hasn't gotten past issue one yet. You know, and you think, well, where did this guy come from? You know, Maggie Simpson is, has been a baby for, what, 30 years. So I see what you're saying. And I think they do dial back on that idea of 
uh, that that aging that that you know it is clearly a, quite a big feature of this issue one. But as the series progresses, they kind of you know forget about that whole issue a little bit, and and in a couple of characters, it seems a little bit more pronounced that uh, that they're you know older and different, like uh, Hawk slash Tomahawk. Is is clearly you know older, a little bit more grizzled. He's he's you know had maybe a bit more promotion in his his career, and he's now you know part of the the jugglers. Duke has you know moved on past the Joes, and now he's some sort of you know top secret super spy uh, for for some you know hush hush agency. And you know they're very different in a very different place versus where they you know we saw them last in 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 the Marvel run and then i think you know over time and we'll you know see this as we'll you know read the issues that i think they do dial back on that that that, you know they they gradually get a little bit closer to the you know what we would see as the you know real mold of the the character that we would kind of the silhouettes (laughs) of what you would expect to see that character bit be all of their defining uh features i think for me the portrayal of hawk was probably the biggest disappointment um he just was not the same as you know hawk that you'd seen through the almost the entire run of the original series he was more i mean if you could have called him general flag and you know if we didn't know that general flag died in like issue 16 you would think oh okay i can see that flag was this old grizzled veteran that was you know kind of curmudgeonly um and also that one of the the little details that i didn't like was calling him tomahawk i mean he has a code name already it's hawk there's no reason to to add the tomahawk to it just uh it, it didn't sit well with me that the, the whole portrayal of of that character i think tim tim probably will know this better than than i but um i think there were some issues with the uh, copyrights uh, of these characters where hasbro had l- l- had let them lapse and uh, other companies had bought up the the copyright which was why you know when the figures were coming out in uh, 2002 and, and so, so on that often they might be called different names than the ones okay. we knew. Um, I've a feeling that there might have been a Hawk figure that came out called Tomahawk. And yeah, we saw Bazooka being launched as Sergeant Bazooka, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. There is a, there is a 2000 general Tomahawk figure, which mm-hmm. is clearly Hawk. Yeah. So it was, it was probably a, an edict from, from Hasbro that um, to play it safe um, let's not use the, uh, the the hawk name just in case it, it you know gets them on sticky ground. That makes sense. What next? Let's uh, let's talk about maybe some of the I guess incorporation of comics and cartoons because this was sort of yeah I think part of the mission statement again was like you know let's let's have it as the comic and, and sort of play into that history of the comic but let's also sort of take uh, some some inspiration from the the cartoons as as well uh, i wondered if you, you guys picked up on on that yeah tomax and zamot finish each other's Sandwiches. sentences as they do in the cartoon and uh, they refer to, or Cobra Commander refers to Extensive Enterprises, which is their company from the TV show that was never mentioned or a part of the Marvel comic. And I, I'm okay with that. Uh, I, I loved their portrayal in the TV show. I loved Extensive Enterprises and that the sort of business relationship that Cobra ostensibly has with Mars, Destro's military armament company, which is only ever referred to, I think, one time in the entire cartoon, right? And Destro is just sort of recast as like a second in command, which he wouldn't be. 
so bringing extensive enterprises into the comic felt fun. Yeah, it, it felt fun. Um, sorry, in the cartoon, I'm not so familiar with the, the, the cartoon and I've not watched a lot of it for, for quite a while. Do they, do they have an equivalent of green shirts in, in there as well? So so this is a big introduction point for, for the comics is, is that there are these people from the military and various other services that are being brought in as, as a kind of proving ground for, for G.I. Joe. So they've almost got their own infantry, which which they, they call their, their green green shirts. Was, was that something that we saw a bit of in the cartoon? Yes and no. In the same way that, like, if you... If you film a movie and you have people eating at a restaurant and you hire extras to be in the background, or you have a parade and you hire extras to be in the background, the green shirts on the cartoon were just extras. They never spoke. They were never referred to. They didn't have names. They were just like any time the Joes are attacking Cobra, if you need 10 or 30 more people to drive some other vehicles or to be in a vehicle with one of the marquee characters who talks, there is a green shirt. But they are sort of, though they're clearly visible, they're oddly invisible. Yeah, I get that. I get that. And how do you feel about the, I don't even need to ask you, Tim, how do you, how do you feel about the introduction of these uh, green shirts to, to fill out the uh, G.I. Joe forces? I, I don't think it's necessary because the actual G.I. Joe team, like all the toys of ha that Hasbro made, individual people with, with costumes and names, there are so many of them, just use them. Like it, it does make sense that you'd have mechanics and cooks and uh, security uh, guards, but I don't want to spend precious pages and panels on that when, uh, you know, like someone like uh, downtown or ramparts or bullhorn it's like oh bring them in jay absolutely agree there's so many characters that you could use there's there's no reason except like you said people to refuel the planes you know load ammunition things like that which would be support troops you would only see on the base when you're out on a mission there's no reason to have green shirts yeah i think i think you uh, agree with both of those points uh, probably part part of where they're coming from is that you know the Joes are so old now that seven years has passed. They're probably you know in their late twenties, you know mid thirties. God, you know some of these guys way past it, as as we all know. Um, and and so you need to bring in the fresh blood, and, and that part of that is a the proving ground of the the gro the the green shirts to to have a, a pool that that you can select some of the the new best of best for the for the next generation of. Uh, Joe's, but yeah, you could do that without creating a, a whole infantry of uh, of green shirts. But then, besides references to the cartoon, there is a reference to the toy and the comic on the same page, where a bunch of these green shirts are introduced, and they're all lined up as Hawk gives them a speech. He says he sees Kamakura, and he says, "How'd the Green Power Ranger get in here? I thought I made it clear that I won't." repeat the quote ninja force recruitments the upper brass passed in the 90s and that's a like cute and funny swipe at the ninja force line of toys that came out for two years at the end of the 80s 90s run but also that the comic book near the end of the marvel run got as some people called it quote ninja crazy mm -hmm. and i always hesitate when a brand makes fun of itself. And this scene just flashes me back to the first X-Men movie where they're in the Blackbird and they're flying to the showdown and 
Wolverine and Cyclops are talking and it, and the conversation's like, oh, this black leather, it's sort of tight and uncomfortable. Like, what do you expect? Yellow spandex? And the audience like giggles because we know that in the comics uh, and in like the, you know, at the, at the grand opening of a Toys R Us where you have a person in a costume, it's like yellow spandex and that's dumb. But no, it's not dumb. That's what it is. Don't don't make don't make fun of it. And probably even more so, the first GI Joe um, movie, The Rise of Cobra, as well. There's quite a few uh, sort of throwaway lines that kind of poke poke fun with the. I think they've got kung fu grip and uh, realistic hair kind of references. That kind of thing. Yeah, I think you need to. I think you need to own up to and accept what you are. And if you don't want to use an element, don't use it. But don't make fun of it because. Um, like, yes, is, is a person wearing yellow spandex silly in real, in real life? Yes. But like for, you know, 50 years, that's what Wolverine has been in the comics. And, um, like, don't like, that's, that's my jam, you know, like, don't make fun. All right, Tim, you just squashed my favorite line of dialogue. Yeah, that was going to be my favorite line of dialogue too. Now, really? Now we're just going to yeah. draw a big line through that that whole you guys, segment. You guys like this scene? I don't know if I like this scene, but I thought that was funny. I thought it was a cute line. How the how the Green Power Ranger get in here? <laughs> uh, okay, how about this? I think I think Green Power Ranger. I think that's fine. But then the next line is where it goes too far for me. And the it's, Ninja it's not, Force line. It's not. It's not cruel and it's not mean spirited, but. It crosses a line for me. It's like, no, this is like G.I. Joe is inherently silly. Batman is inherently silly. And you can have a grounded movie like Batman Begins. You can have a fantastical movie like uh, Batman. You can have a like a, a bonkers movie like Batman Forever. But like he's a guy who dresses up like a bat and jumps from rooftop to rooftop. And that's crazy and not realistic so if we accept one thing we have to accept the other it's like no they're ninjas in gi joe and <laughs> you know it's like in, in in retaliation i wish there the second live action movie i wish there had been one more di- line of dialogue where someone just explains From how Snake and Ice. why uh, <laughs> just how and why anyone it's like no no we actually we actually know these ninjas and we team up with them sometimes like i like how that how that movie embraced that. It's like, no, this movie is going to be a lot of ninja stuff. And I wanted a little bit more of, of the connective tissue. All right. Sorry. Back to the Devil's Due comic. Uh, let's move on to some G.I. Joe fashion. Armani, Prada, Versace too. Joe's changed their outfits from black to blue. Duke and Hawk, look, but don't gawk. Changing their kit. Whoa, was that legit? Swapping camo jackets, headgear and boots. It's now neon colors and funky space suits. Sci-fi stalker and even Roblox. While Bill, Flint and Mutt gave me a shot. So go take a walk if clothes aren't your passion. So there was quite a lot of redesigns here, and, and a lot of these were coming from actually uh, Josh Blaylock, who who was uh, doing a lot of the the you know some some of the redesign work, what the characters would look like, and then passing that on to uh, to the artists like J. Scott Campbell for the covers and and Steve Kerr for the interiors. Um, so we've got some yeah, interesting new uh, looks for, for the people. So uh, maybe we'll sort of hone in on a, on a couple of these. The big one, I think, is uh, Shipwreck, who we first saw on, on the cover. So he's uh, ditched his village people in the Navy look and, uh, and is now there in, in his sort of, uh, how would you call that, a, a sort of a turtleneck kind of roll neck jumper with, uh, with, the, with the hat. 
um, looking, you know, look still looking very nautical. Every every bit the the seafaring sea uh, badass, but but this time actually, you know, with with much less uh, room to to poke fun at him. Yeah, shipwreck. I I, I like that with the sweater. Uh, like you said, it is still kind of. Um... You know, he looks like a sailor, but he doesn't look like Donald Duck. Um, the ones that I didn't like were a lot of the redesigns were just bland. Like there was a shot maybe in a later episode or in a later issue of Flint and he's standing there and he's just got like, a, you know, a black shirt and maybe some things on his wrist. And it's, you know, like Tim said in, in the last podcast you guys did about their iconic looks. I don't mind changes or tweaks, but don't, if you're going to change it, don't just make it uh, something bland and, 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 you know, that doesn't have a lot of style or flair to it. Yeah. So, so yeah, as you, I think this, the snake, the, the shipwreck look clearly works was, was instantly very popular and, and was very quickly actually, you know, in, incorporated in the, in the toys that this, this design was, was used as a basis of a number of toys. Uh, Flint's redesign was basically let's let's take Flint and stick him in a black t-shirt instead which seems fairly pointless just given how bland it is yeah it's just boring um my 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 two thoughts here are uh something I like and something I don't um I agree with what you have both just said about shipwreck importantly there is blue not on the cover so much but in in, in the interiors the cue for shipwreck, like what makes shipwreck shipwreck? He has a beard and a mustache. He has some kind of hat and he's wearing blue. If you had to boil it down to the minimum, that's it. If you put him in like green fatigues, it's not shipwreck. And so uh, this costume here checks off those boxes. But importantly, um, shipwreck's specialty changes uh, or his, his expertise changes from 85 when his first figure was released to 94, he becomes a seal, right? He's not just a sailor, he becomes a seal. And so mm-hmm. um, his costume here, or, or. Uh, he, becomes, he, becomes, he becomes a Navy seal. And so his costume here feels like a nod to that. Um, I'd like a little more gear, you know, I'd like, I don't know, one more thing on his belt or one more strap on his pants, but it's great. Uh, Destro um, has a lot of less elegant and more like comic book villain Mm -hmm. stuff happening on his pants and his sort of top right like he still has the cat okay so it's it's iconically destro right metallic mask um black and red uh i need to see the the red gem around his neck and i need to see something that refers to his cowl or his collar right and so everything else from then on it's like gloves no gloves uh like fancy boots not fancy boots that can change. But what's happening here is there's a lot of like red ribbing and gray ribbing on his costume that is cool looking, but it doesn't mean anything. And he's got these giant stompy boots, mm-hmm. uh, which um, are, are uh, referred to in the, in the convention special, uh, the, the comic book that Devils Do published before issue one came out. And you can see two or three different artists taking a swipe at this new Destro. And what I think I see here, like Josh Blaylock was a like punk or goth mm. kid in, in his fashion and in some of his sensibilities, you know, like his hair, his clothes, his jewelry, like as a person at conventions, like that was part of his uh, gestalt. And 
that also bore out in some of the characters that he wrote and drew in some of his comics that he did on his own through Devil's Do, not something like G.I. Yeah. Joe where he's doing it with other people. And what I think I see here in these boots on Destro are like big, stompy, goth boots. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. I don't know if that's Destro. Yeah, Destro I thought was way over-designed over when I first saw him. And, you know, I was like, what is going on with this character? Uh, later, I think it does kind of get explained in a way in the story. So I didn't have as much a problem with it once I found out what's going on. Uh, but initially, yeah, I was like, what? what is this? You know, it's the opposite of, you see with some of the Joes that are under-designed. And you look at that first splash page, or it's, it's not a splash page, but it's a large image of Destro. And like you said, with all of the, the ribbing and the big stomping boots and stuff, and you're just like, what what is going on here? I agree with all of that. The the other one that I saw, which I think I like, uh, was was sort of the take on Zartan. You know, he looks quite different to Zartan, as we know. And I sort of thought him of as a, as a, as a Marlon Brando kind of Zartan, a lot sort of thicker set and and sort of maybe maybe like the idea of him being a big gangster boss and sort of gaining that power and sort of let, letting thing you know maybe come having an, this this illness which is making him less active um and just sort of luxuriating a little bit in this this power and overindulgence of just thickening out just in the in the way that you, the a job of the hut might or bib fortuna so yeah just as you saw bib fortuna kind of thicken out uh, at the end of uh, Mandalorian as well, once he had, um, you know, gained some some power as well. That's interesting. I really hadn't picked up on that, but that's a good point. Yeah, Zartan. He's you know you think of the cover to issue twenty four where he's stand he's balancing on the water moccasin, you know, about to blast the dragonfly, mm -hmm. and he's we don't know it yet, but like he's one of the ninjas, and you know he's 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 powerful and muscular and in shape like all those guys, and. Um, Mark, you make a good point here that he's more like a crime boss now, and his 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 head is drawn wider. Yeah, I, I appreciate it's okay. So all right, so what are the what are the cues that make Zartan at a minimum? He needs some kind of like face makeup or tattoo or shadows on his face in those sort of diamond shapes. He needs something active on his head. I would prefer a hood. But uh, I also think that that second Zartan action figure where he's got an orange mohawk really makes a, a bold statement. And then something about his chest and his pants need to have a little bit of gear, right? Like his, his boots or those pieces on the action figure that stuck onto his thighs or the, the chest plate. You like armor. Uh, yeah, armor. But also because the toy, the actual action figure turned blue in sunlight, they specifically... Uh, Hasbro made this clear chest piece so that you can sort of have fun with like, can I see the skin color through the clear plastic? Or can I block? Can I block the sunlight? So part of his chest is blue and part of his chest is this Caucasian color. And since we don't really see Zartan here in the comic much from the neck down, we're missing an opportunity to use the one or two of those cues. He just he's just sort of wearing. Like a, I guess a black long leather jacket and he's got a black shirt and I don't know about pants and boots. So this redesign is sort of two thirds there for me. Sure. Okay. So was there anything else that we wanted to, uh, to talk about before we get into some of the little nuggets of detail in I Spy? There's one little thing that I actually had written down under um, details, but it goes back to uh, costuming again. There's a panel where it's on the page where um, 
Destro agrees to sit down and listen to Cobra Commander. And in the very last panel, you see Dr. Mindbender sitting at the table with the Crimson Twins. And he's putting a fedora on. And I just think that the look of Mindbender with the suit and the vest and the glasses and the fedora is perfect. I, I was like, that is such a good look for that character. Yeah, some it sort of does seem to to fit it's a it's very much a joker kind of look in terms of the purple suit and the fedora but yeah it does it does seem to fit with uh mm-hmm. with the look of uh mindbender cool so uh, let's go playing i spy and see what little mini details uh, other mini details there are i spy with my little eye so i spied and this wasn't tricky but i spied kamakura <laughs> so first page and already out of the gate Devil's Due is creating a brand new G.I. Joe character and one that seemed to to gain quite a lot of traction. So we saw, we do, you know, he does become quite an important character as it progresses, but also he was one that was subsequently made into a figure by, uh, by Hasbro uh, later on in 2003, I think it was. Any, any other, uh, so that's, uh, that was, you know, real precise looking at really in the details for something that probably you two guys missed. Um, but uh, was there any other little mini nuggets of detail that that you spotted that you liked? One thing that I liked when um, Duke calls the Joes back in, that he doesn't address them um, specifically or or only by their code names. Mm. He calls Scarlet Shanna, he calls uh, Roadblock Marvin, uh, Shipwreck Hector, and I like that. I like that you know, the idea that they're not always going to address each other by their code names. Because if you watch a TV show like The Unit, uh, which is about... It's kind of Delta Force, but they don't call it Delta Force. They have code names. All the characters have code names, but you never hear them except for when they're out in the field and they might be calling each other on the radio. Any other time, they're just, you know, Sergeant, whatever your name is. And I always kind of thought that that's what, how the code names should be used. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting um, observ- observation, and, and I, I agree. And it's not something that Larry really did in his uh, original run. It was. I think very rare that you would see the actual, um, you know, real names, real name being uh, being being used in the in the book. You know, you might see it sort of occasionally for for the likes of Hawk, but very you know yeah. very rare occurrences. I would I would say so to actually have them interacting and calling themselves by their by their real names. It, it's yeah, it's interesting and it's different and it sort of I guess does make them more like people rather than just. Mm-hmm you know, action figures out on a, out on their mission. I spy an inconsistent use of the capital I letter <laughs> form. Okay, so y- y- you all know what serifs are, right? If you if you draw the letter I, it's just an up and down mm-hmm. line. Mm-hmm. But if it has a little crossbar on the top and bottom, those are called serifs. And yeah. if you mm-hmm. type in Microsoft Word, you might know like what, what sans serif means, right? That's mm-hmm. a font that doesn't have those little bits like on the bottoms of T's and the uh, tops of J's. So there's a rule in comics lettering, Mm. which is that, because comics lettering is traditionally all capital letters. So there's a rule that if the word I is used by itself, like uh, I I salute you, uh, that gets serifs. And if if the letter I is in a word, like is or uh, inside it does not get serifs because mm-hmm. it's space it's too crowded and it's distracting and there are both kinds of eyes in this lettering yeah. and i need to spend a moment on this because uh, i'm just going to jump to the end i'm sorry 
this lettering is not professional. Uh, if, if you want to get into lettering comic books and you have a hard time seeing like what makes good lettering and bad lettering, and I don't mean fonts and I don't mean sound effects, I mean spacing, kerning, word balloon shapes, and placement. Um, this, this is a comic book to pick up to see lettering that is not ready for prime time. There are lots of word balloons where the, the sort of lines of dialogue in them aren't evenly stacked inside the actual ovals. Um, pages six and seven, all of a sudden the font gets compressed, but it's not because there's like too much dialogue in a tiny panel. Like the font, it, it doesn't get smaller. It just gets sort of left and white, left and right more squished together. And, and then when uh, Cobra starts talking on the page uh, after they're all sitting at the table together, there are all these uh, word balloons that are squeezed into, into corners that are these sort of odd, like, squares with rounded corners. And, you know, like, uh, the page with the sound effect CLUD, C-L-U-D, where a soldier gets uh, hit with a, the back of a gun. Like, I like that sound effect. Looks hand-drawn. I like that. I'm sorry, the lettering in this comic is not good. Mm -hmm. And I want to point out, there is no credited letterer. Yeah, it just says, visit blambot.com for free comic fonts, doesn't it? Hmm. So what mm. that suggests to me is that, one, uh, someone at Devil's Due, like a production artist or the editor, lettered it, or that more than one person lettered it. And, like, that's allowed. You know, lettering can be, it's like color, right? You can have a studio do it. But uh, you know, even the first page, like the very first page, the second panel where everything's green because we're looking through binoculars and two dreadnoughts are talking back and forth, Right? The indication that it's two different people talking is that the colors of these boxes are different, um, but all the dialogue is too close to the top line, and there's the, the one that's all the way on the right side, there's too much space on the bottom of it. Sorry, Devil's Do. Try again. That was one of the things that I was going to say, was the, the lettering was very unprofessional looking. Um, and, and to your point about the eyes, you can look at the page where uh, the Cobras are talking, and, and the first panel has the Crimson Twins, uh, the first word balloon, uh, the eyes have the serifs, and in the second one, they're gone. And it's, you know, like you said, it's within the sentence. It's, it's in the middle of words, and it's just uh, the square shapes and the rounded. It was another thing that kind of took me out of the book a little bit. Now, for listeners who are saying, Tim, you're nitpicking too much. Tim, you're nitpicking too much. But my response is that... Um, lettering in comics is like editing in film right it's it's supposed to be invisible right like there are again i'm not talking about like sound effects mm -hmm. and and fonts and fonts add a lot to comics there are fonts based on artists handwriting there are fonts that feel more like the 60s or the 90s and there are treatments for word balloon like remember briefly um there was like a year in at marvel in i don't know 1997 or 8 where like every time the human torch talked his word balloon was colored orange and his letters were white or like if Iceman spoke his word balloon was blue and his his letters were were white like cool too much well even going back to the original uh, marvel run didn't they do road pig with two different styles of lettering depending yeah, yeah, on yeah. which personality was talking they did and they they dropped it after a little bit of work a bit of time but yeah for sure there was originally the road pig and donald personalities in different different fonts but yeah it's i guess i guess it's because uh and i think it's a common mistake for for indie publishing that you know pe people perceive the lettering as you know an, an extra expense that maybe they can save because you know it's just typing into a bubble and moving that around 
whereas it it clearly is a very specific skill set and if it if it's done badly it you know it stands out and it looks wrong whereas if it's it really stands out if it's done well it's almost as you say in invisible clearly you know they've missed a trick here that you it's something that that is worthy of uh picking up and it's been i've seen it to the extent of picking up a, a you know cheaply done a sort of a an indie book done by all, one person they've clearly you know saved a bit on the lettering by trying to do themselves and it and i can't look past the bad lettering to, to any of the rest of it because it just sticks out so 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 much that that it's just a hurdle that that, that doesn't get you the price of entry almost yeah my other i spy is page 11 the scene where Scarlet and Snake Eyes have a, a tense moment and then she smacks him and walks away. I have two problems with this scene. One, I don't think Scarlet would smack Snake Eyes. This this feels like something that would never happen in the Marvel run and that she can be upset. She can not speak to him. This feels too much like a soap opera moment. Um, but mm-hmm. but in terms of, of publishing, there are five repeated panels where they're just standing, sort of looking at each other. So the first panel gets drawn, and the second, third, fourth, fifth panel are copied and pasted. Mm-hmm. And this is something you can do in comics, and it and it doesn't work. And my analogy, <laughs> my analogy is, if you're if you're watching a movie and you have two characters standing and not moving, even if they're not blinking, and they're just looking at each other, they they breathe and like air molecules pass in front of the camera between the camera and the actors. And so the scene, even if there's no movement and it looks like it's frozen, it, it sort of quote breathes. But if you take a, a photo of that shot, or if you pause your DVD, then they're frozen. And I I have students in my comics class who do this. They want to repeat a moment. And so they copy and paste a panel. And I say, no, it looks like you paused the DVD rather than you animated a hold, right? So, sorry, sorry, this needs to be redrawn each time, even if even though that's a pain. Yeah, and not only that, but five panels, it's an incredible waste of space, especially when you're thinking about the other pages that we were talking about where they've got 13 panels on one page. Uh, this is something that could have been done in two or three panels, and it, it's, like you said, it's just kind of out of character. It, it didn't work for me. And is it doesn't look particularly an effective place to snap to slap Snake Eyes. To be fair, that that visor looks sharp. <laughs> yeah, she's going to hurt her hand more than Snake Eyes. A punch face. to the gut, I think, would work. Uh, I'm but, uh, I'm very I'm very interested in the story that they're not good for each other anymore. That she's angry, he's guilty, and I'd mm-hmm. like to see that explored. And I I'd like to see her express her anger. This isn't how I'd like to see it expressed. Okie dokie. Uh, let's move on to favourite line of dialogue. Quote of the week, 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 quote of the week. Was there any remaining favourite lines? <laughs> now Tim, this is on you. Tim has spoiled our fun. <laughs> um... Tim? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, Tim's like, I liked at the end where it said the end. <laughs> uh, it said to be continued, to be fair. Okay, no. I'll, go, I'll go with a note. Let's not pick one arbitrarily, but um, uh, I did notice that uh, Destro called... Uh, so where did he, what did he say exactly? He said... I called him a buffoon. He called him a buffoon. Yeah, he just says, you buffoon. 
And I think that was another part of, you know, calling back to the cartoon, you know, that famous line of dialogue from the movie where Destro goes, Militarily speaking, it is only fair to say that Cobra Commander is a world-class buffoon. (laughs) (laughs) Well done, sir. Thank you. So I'll leave it at that. um, Was there any errors detected? Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. Uh, the only little minor error that I thought I noticed was possibly a colorist mistake. Uh, on the po- on the page where the Joes are all called mainframe, the way he's colored, he almost looks like he's uh, from Central America or Mexico or something, or, or possibly Native American. And I wouldn't have a problem with changing that, except later on in the series, he doesn't look like that. I think I think the intention here is that he's he's inside and he's not near a light source. Mm. I think the intention oh. here is that's that's like Caucasian in shadow yeah. rather than a different ethnicity. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm willing to give that one a pass. The the couple that I picked up, up on were in that original scene with Duke gathering everyone together, they had a pile of photos of like intel of of Cobra and on that pile of photos it included uh, Serpentor who died at the end of civil war and cobra commander in his battle armor which you'd expect would be uh fred seven um who was chucked down uh, the the freighter and, and died then so what is the point of these um these reference photos here clearly you know you've got a bunch of people who know them but how on earth is it relevant to to their new intel other other than just going oh here's a bunch of cobra faces that's Serpentor, baby. That's one of the greatest hits. You got to have that. In there. <laughs> but how's it relevant to their latest <laughs> intelligence gathering? It's not. Yeah, he's uh, not. Uh, and so the other thing that I noticed, which is you know, probably less of an error and more of an artistic uh, license, is that Zaymot's scar appears to have moved. It was previously on his right cheek and is now under his left eye. Yeah, I I, I didn't pick up on that one. Good, no, I didn't good either. Jo- good job, sir. <laughs> nice eye there we go <laughs> eagle-eyed as well as wolf-eared you know what sorry i want to go back to i spy um uh, on the on the next page three joes walk past a i don't know if it's a green shirt sort of specific to the joe team or some military personnel who was sort of already in this base but in the final two panels this guy salutes as mm-hmm. three joes walk by and he thinks in a thought balloon wow joe's in the flesh Mm-hmm. I think that might be the first time there's ever been a thought balloon in a G.I. Joe comic. Ah. And uh, that could be interesting on its own, if it's correct. It's also an interesting sort of slight change in the rules for this comic book where, you know, like in writing, you have a third person omniscient voice where, you know, the narrator writes like he, she, it does this, but you also know what everyone is thinking. Yeah. And you know, a lot of G.I. Joe story, a lot of stories, right, we're sort of more in the point of view of the good guys, or we start with the bad guys, and then we go to the good guys, and we mostly stay with the good guys. And this is an interesting, I think I like it, I think it works. This is an interesting bit where we have an internal monologue for a character, literally, because we can read their thoughts, as mm. opposed to just letting the body language of the salute and the guy's surprise show it, or having some version of narration uh, and it's, where 
Yeah, it's a bit like a com a comedy beat as well, isn't it? Um, yes, yes. There was there was at least one other time when all the cobras were at a <clears throat> like a dinner or something. Turned out later they were in the back of a truck, and they show every character in a little panel, and every one of them is thinking different about a different character. Like Cobra Commander, for example, might be thinking, mm -hmm. uh, "Is Destro going to betray me?" Uh, you know, Destro's thinking something. Uh, Scarface is thinking something. So we have seen word balloons in GI Joe comics yeah, before. It's, yeah, just it's not just very, often. very, very seldom. Yeah, I think okay. I can. Th there was definitely an example where Cobra Commander had a had a thought balloon very early on. Some probably somewhere in the twenties. All right. Well, I, thank you. I, I stand corrected. This is the first time in a Devil's Do. This is the first time in a Devil's Do GI Joe comic that we've had a thought balloon. Oh yeah, first time. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can only get away with that once, Tim. But again, that's also if you look at that, it, it's one where they've copied the panel, just like on the Snake Eyes Scarlet page. And why is he still saluting? Because uh, he's because he's nervous. I think you can get away with one copy and paste, but when it's but more not than five, that, yeah, when it's more than that, you, sorry, you have to redraw it. Yeah, and then, you know, um, a, a salute coming down can be can be delayed. That's that's allowed. The, I came up with an idea for a brand new feature, and it is called "You Are the Editor." Talking Joe is editing. What changes will we think? Rearrange all sorts of things like covers. The script is in the air, correcting everywhere, wielding the red pen of change. Devil's due, our moment. To comment, make it right Where we can make the book our way We're wielding change, we're editing Imagine the power So, so the idea of this feature is that um, What small change could you conceivably make? So you, you've, maybe you've just got the script in or maybe you've seen even the finished art, and you can't get making huge sweeping changes, but you could, you know, tweak something here, there. What what small change would you make for for this issue? Well, I mean, we've all picked apart the art uh, and, and costume design and stuff enough. I, other than those kind of things, I really didn't have a lot of problem with the story itself. Um, you know, I enjoyed it probably more than I thought I did. My only the only thing that I would have changed or maybe improved on was I would have given a little more explanation of what happened with Cobra in the last seven years. To prepare for this podcast, I went back and listened to Chief and Chris uh, discussing the end of the Marvel series, uh, starting with around 121, and they mentioned that the Cobras had almost completely pulled out of Cobra Island. Um, and I, I didn't know why, you know, and I was kind of looking for an answer for that because, you know, the creation of Cobra Island was one of Cobra's biggest victories you know, in the entire series, and it was a major driver for the series, the story, for several years, so I don't know why they abandoned that. Um, and I wondered if you guys had any idea about that. 
I, I think they, they they fill in a, some of the gaps a little bit in bet- in between and the and the first uh, arc of the frontline series was created ostensibly to try and fill in the the gap in between one five five and and this issue one. Um, okay. So we do find out a little bit, um, but um, yeah, the point about Cobra Island is an interesting one because actually the last we saw of it in the Marvel comics, Cobra had already abandoned it to. Uh, to Firefly, I believe. So um, yeah. I don't know that the, that they actually had gone back and properly reoccupied it in the Marvel run it's, itself. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, of, you know, clearly in between the gaps, they've gone back and then they've subsequently reabandoned it uh, again. Um, you know, it must have all sorts of abandonment issues uh, for, <laughs> for an island if they feel. Yeah, those. you made me and then left me. <laughs> But yeah, I think that's the only thing that I would have would have changed, other than you know the, the stuff that we've already talked about, character yeah. designs, um, you know, lettering, different different little little technical things like that. I think I I, I probably would have uh, gone gone along the route of just can we just go a little bit easier on some of those cheekbones cheekbones and chins, maybe just particularly around smoothing out uh, the way that the Baroness looked, that kind of thing. Um, you know, not on a whole yeah. scale real draw, but just trying to find the maybe some of the the worst examples of it, and just kind of you know ease up, up a little bit. bit, ease up a bit. Yeah, yeah. My Tim, small, letters aside, my, uh, no, it's letters. Uh, my small editing change would be I would remove five words from this comic book. <laughs> uh, but before I tell you which ones they are, um, a, a parallel in the Ooh, I can't early, wait in the early nineties. Um, all of the image comics creators, you know, they'd left Marvel and they're selling like crazy and they had all this creative freedom and all of them loved the work of Jack Kirby because they'd all been reading Marvel comics in the 60s and 70s and then worked on those characters or uh, sort of their their brethren. And those guys published a Jack Kirby comic, right? Phantom Force in, I think, 94. And that was Jack Kirby's biggest payday ever. His mm-hmm. uh, his payment and royalties, or his royalties from Phantom Force number one, which he penciled and all the image guys inked, right? Like Rob Liefeld inked some pages, Jim Lee, Todd McFarlane, Eric Larson. Uh, it's not an amazing comic, but it's really interesting to see that artwork. And the series continued for a few more issues, and then I think with a different publisher. And like a lot of Jack Kirby stuff, you know, after his prime in the 60s and 70s, it's not it's not his prime work. But the image guys didn't like dedicate all of their first issues of Spawn and Wildcats and Youngblood to Jack Kirby. Uh, I think McFarlane did dedicate an issue of Spawn to Jack Kirby, but they didn't only do that. They hired him or they 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 let him publish through them and then they worked on it. And then in the back of that comic, they all wrote a couple paragraphs saying how much they loved his work and how much they were excited to work on this book. So the five words I would take out of this comic, uh, Devil's Do G.I. Joe number one, are on the inside front cover, specially dedicated to Larry Hama. Hama was still alive. I mean, he's still alive right now. And he's still writing G.I. Joe right now. Hama was out there and available. And it is a bold decision to continue the Marvel continuity that was 99% written by that one person without using that one person on this new comic. And like, you can make that call. It's like, you know what? I'm gonna write 
the the continued GI Joe, not the guy who wrote GI Joe. And you know, there could be timing reasons, money reasons, personality reasons. Whatever the reason, uh, I think dedicating it to him is tacky. Interesting, because I know that uh, Josh Blaylock uh, actually called Larry Hammer ahead of issue one being published, and he said it was a, a very awkward call because one, he's you know saying I'm you know going to continue your um, your version of GI Joe and not offer you a job, uh, but but two, um, it's it was also a cold call to to Larry, and he's not necessarily the the most uh, the warmest, most chatty guy. Um, if, if, you know, if getting a, a cold call out of the, the blue. And I think there was a couple of considerations for, for, for Josh at the time. The first being that, you know, he'd have had to pay Larry and, and he didn't necessarily have loads of cash flow. He was, I think, temp, doing temp jobs in the, in the run up to, to this coming out. And most of, uh, most of the creators were being paid uh, on, on back end deals. And secondly, the, he, he said that, um, you know, this was his big shot. This was going to be, uh, you know, he wanted it to be a really big book. He was going to be, he was quite an unknown indie creator and simply put, he just wanted to get his name out there and and this was going to be his shot. And if uh, if he wasn't drawing it and if he wasn't writing it, it, it wouldn't make his name. Um, so he did definitely want to work with Larry and uh, and was able to eventually with the uh, with the first arc of uh, Front, Frontline, which... Uh, you know, hopefully we'll we'll get to at some point uh, down the line but yeah it could have been all very different uh, had a different call being made and and uh, offering uh, Larry that Larry that gig I should say had Hama written the Devil's Due comic I can imagine uh, two years in him not writing it anymore and someone else writing it or him writing it until the end and then when it came time for IDW to start its G.I. Joe comics, maybe IDW would have said, uh, Larry Hama's a little overexposed or too mm. affiliated with G.I. Joe. And so I think by having this decidedly not Larry Hama version run for several years, you have a hunger amongst the fans and one or two really thoughtful editors at IDW. Oh, why don't we continue the Marvel story with the guy who wrote the Marvel story? So yeah. I think without, I think you wouldn't necessarily have the current G.I. Joe comic that Hama is writing, if not for him not writing the Devil's Due book. Yep, good point. You mentioned the Bench Press um, series that didn't happen that was going to be written by Larry, and I wonder how similar that would have been to the R.A.H. book that we got 15 years later. It's, um, it was, so he, Hama wrote a proposal and Ron Lim penciled four pages so the idea was that uh, it was going to be a very small team, like just 12 Joes, and then other characters would, would be brought in sort of mission specific. And uh, a couple years had passed since issue 155, and uh, Bench Press had a notion to uh, launch one G.I. Joe comic and then start a second one because they knew that uh, there were so many characters and... Uh, they had. They wanted to hire other creatives to work on it. You can read. I mean, Larry's proposal is out there online. You can read it. I think it would have been in the way that the current Larry Hama GI Joe comic is a little topical to sort of real world events. I think that comic would have been a little topical to real world events and yet still noticeably GI Joe. And and not being familiar with the Devil's Due Run past the first year, I think it was more 
sort of straight action and a little bit of sci-fi without sort of references to like real world politics or news. Yeah, I think the short, short answer is very different. <laughs> so would it have been a continuation of the original book? Yeah, yeah. So they, um, yeah, have a have a Google and, and search GI Joe uh, bench okay. press, and you'll you'll see the um, uh, the proposal and, and the pages of art that were done. But yeah, it sort of picks up essentially with um, a, a small handful of Joes um, going to the moth mothballed pit. Um, oh, okay. So, so yeah, I think it was intended to be very much a continuation. So I have I have one sort of large overall comment on this first Devil's Due issue. Um, well, I think what I didn't have when I read this first issue in 2001 was a global sense of it as a comic book. I was too close to it, like being a G.I. Joe fan and loving the Marvel run. And the things that were different or that didn't work about this were jumping out at me. With hindsight, rereading the comic yesterday, um, I can actually talk about it as a comic book. And unfortunately, it's not a good first issue because it's 23 pages long and it's 23 pages of talking. Someone gets bonked on the head with the butt of a gun, uh, of a rifle. Someone gets kicked in the face with a big stompy boot, but it's, it's played sort of for laughs. It's not a big action beat. Um, otherwise, it's all talking. Don't There's forget some... the alligator that gets stabbed. Okay, sure. Uh, yeah, on okay, yeah, on on page two, an alligator gets stabbed. But I know again, exactly what you mean, though. But again, that's not that's not a big dramatic story beat. That's mm -hmm. like a this guy's a badass right. beat, and it's it's done sort of in an understated way. It's like oh, he barely moves, and the alligator behind him is dead. And you know, like what's what's the obvious comparison? Well, let's compare Devil's Due GI Joe number one to Marvel GI Joe number one, right? There are lots of ways that it don't line up. They don't line up because the Marvel issue is double sized. It's got two stories. It's starting from scratch, uh, new characters and a new scenario. Whereas this is established characters and it's continuing a story. But what did the Joes do in that first issue, right? A scientist is kidnapped. She's on a train. They rescue her. They go to the Cobra base. Right, Cobra Commander is frightening, but but there is also a scene where all the Joes are gathered, and there's a scene where we get some exposition of how they work at their base. Right, what happens here? Kamakura hands something to Snake Eyes. Turn the page. Snake Eyes calls a Duke. Turn the page. Duke talks to some Joes. Next page. Duke standing in front of a screen. Next page. Joes sitting at a table. Next page. Right. It's like this over and over and over. And because I love the characters and I'm so hungry for the story to continue and I want to see what Blaylock's angle on it is, I'm when I when I read this issue, I'm all in. Like I'm gonna buy issue two, right? This isn't make or break. And in around 2001, this phenomenon in comics publishing started, which is writing for the trade, writing for the trade paperback, writing mm -hmm. for the eventual collection. It's like, oh, I've got a story. Well, you should stretch out that one or two issue story to four or five or six issues because the real unit that we're worried about here is the $15 or $20 reprinting in paperback of this story arc. You don't have to worry if any one issue is particularly um, a satisfying uh, story chunk. And the, the other way of looking at that, that's the pessimistic way of looking at it, padded. The optimistic way of looking at it is, no, I'm not writing a 20-page story and then a 20-page story. I'm writing a 150-page story, and you shouldn't judge the first 20 pages or the middle 20 pages 
It'd be like watching the first 20 minutes of a movie, or any 20 minutes of a movie. You could argue that it's really fair to read the four issues of this arc and to, to judge it on its merits. But, you know, like, this comic, this comic sold... Uh, this was um, ICV2 uh, for September 2001 puts this G.I. Joe number one at the 13th highest selling comic of the month. And it's it's behind some X-Men books, two DC books, and a Spider-Man book. And its sales are uh, 62,000, which is, for then, wow. uh, quite high. Compared to the Marvel run, not high. But this was the number 13 book. And because of the September 11th and you know patriotism connection and the nostalgia boom of 2001, people were paying attention. And I don't know that this first issue does enough exciting stuff, like an action scene, or like rescue, or like repelling a, a, a wall. Like, what if this had started in Media Race, and we're cutting back and forth between Duke bringing the team back together, and also the team that he's now put back together, like invading the Dreadnought uh, compound. Uh, I need I need more action. It's an action comic. Mm. Yeah, well, like you said, that was a trend that was going on. And if you look at the uh, first six issues of Ultimate Spider-Man by Bendis and Bagley, they take six issues to do what you know Marvel did in one issue, and was Amazing Spider or Amazing Fantasy fifteen. GI Joe number one from nineteen eighty two was a self contained story. You beginning, middle, and end. Every page, every page had some kind of action on it it seemed uh, and like you said there's two or three bits of action in this whole book very good have you got that have you got the the um listing of uh the month that this came out in front of you tim the, i do that top is was number one was that wolverine origin or was that the following month it must be the following month because okay. the, the the top four comics are all x-men comics but not wolverine maybe, maybe it was issue number two because I, I know that josh blaylock said that he missed out from number one spot for the biggest selling comic, maybe this was maybe this was GI Joe number two because it was edged out by uh, the Wolverine origin story by uh, Jenkins and Quesada. the The book had pre orders of sixty nine thousand apparently, and uh, Josh went and printed a hundred thousand, given his confidence in the in the book, which uh, all eventually sold out as well. And it went on to have three printings plus an additional printing which was issue one and two reprinted together so it was um you know for a gi joe book uh it was astoundingly popular and, and i think i think you know you correct me if i'm wrong tim but the the, the current idw larry hammer book is closer to like six thousand or something it's it's uh miles yeah. apart yeah uh, but the, you know the the market the market's completely different and it's sure you know the 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 Devil's Due comic was two ninety five. The IDW IDW comic is three ninety nine. Um, there weren't digital sales then. There are now, although they're not a big percentage at all. And IDW is a freestanding publisher, whereas Devil's Due was a studio, a small company publishing through Image. So, um, and and you know, like we don't know how much. Blaylock paid Hasbro for the license. We don't know how much IDW pays Hasbro for the license. Mm. Uh, we do know that Marvel paid Hasbro in 81 very, very little for the yeah, license. Yeah. That, that, that comic was seen as advertising and a way to tell the story, not necessarily for Hasbro, another way to make money on G.I. Joe directly, but indirectly. Good point. 
This sounds like a good segue into some true or false exploration of the circumstances around the Devil's Due book in a sequence I like to call Devil's True or Devil's Poo. Devil's true, 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 our poo, poo, poo is all I want to know right now. True, 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 our poo, 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 let's find out the answers right now. So, true or false, true or poo, uh, we'll alternate maybe, uh, Jay and Tim. So, Jay, uh, for you, as a young child, Josh Blaylock initially loved Transformers and didn't care so much for Joe. True. It is true. Ding, ding. Uh, but that changed, and he did become very much a G.I. Joe fan and uh, sort of... Uh, less so on the Transformers. He described himself as having a Rain Man-like knowledge of G.I. Joe as a, as a child. <laughs> Tim, for you, Blaylock had an inn at Hasbro because his uncle worked there. I'm going to say false. False, correct. Uh, it, uh, his inn was his experience. Uh, to working as a, in licensing from a t-shirt company and, and having uh, a familiarity of the ins and outs of uh, licensing. Jay, the team at Image was a big help to the Devil's Due team in getting the license from Hasbro. Based on what we've said earlier, I kind of don't think so. I could be ding, wrong. Ding, yeah, false. Uh, as right. we say, he, he got the experience in his licensing uh, for the T-shirt company and uh, it was self-published from 1996. So he had, you know, good knowledge of, of a lot of the way that the industry works. Um, so he decided to go for it alone with a lot of uh, youthful gumption. He was only <laughs> about 22 when uh, he secured the, uh, the G.I. Joe license. So, yeah, a very young guy with obviously a lot of confidence. He went out to Hasbro was somehow able to agree the license at, in inverted commas, a ridiculous royalty rate, but uh, you know had enough self-belief that he thought uh, if he got the license, he would find a way. You know, build That's it really up. impressive. Um, and he wanted to get that license down uh, first before then shopping the idea around to any of the companies like Image, because he feared that other people get the same idea you know, might be able to have a little bit more gravitas behind them as, you know, older people or, or having a larger company behind them and uh, would effectively oh, get yeah. gazumped and, and uh, would, would get edged out of it entirely. Uh, okay, I think we're back to Tim again. Several companies really wanted to run the G.I. Joe book once Josh had secured the license and was shopping it around and there was a bidding war, uh, which meant that Blaylock got a great deal at Image. I, I, geez, I wish I knew, but that sounds true. False. Oh, I'm so disappointed in myself. <laughs> so he shopped it to Top Cow first, and they said no. Then he went to wow. Image Central, and publisher Jim Valentino didn't like it at all, but uh, was uh, talked around it by some of the, the people around him, and uh, and they eventually said yes. The basic Image deal at the time was $2,500 fee mm -hmm. uh, per book, plus the cost of printing, but they charged him 3000 because they really weren't keen, so they bumped up the wow. rate. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not really an image book. Never, you know, I was kind of surprised when I saw it come out from Image. I'm like, Image has the G.I. Joe license now? It just never seemed like a 
you know, like a fit. Mm. Even if they cut, even if they ch- change the logo green, <laughs> surely that's enough, man. <laughs> okay, put them uh, all in armor with big shoulder pads. Right, and I'll, I'll save up some more facts for true or poo next week. Perfect. <laughs> and I think we are, we are running uh, long. So I Super think long. we will have to save up all of the other sequ- uh, other things that we would like to otherwise talk about. Toy talk, G.I. Joe merchandise, listener questions, uh, innuendo, of course, as well. Uh, we'll have to save that, that up for, for next time, I'm, uh, I'm afraid. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I think, <laughs> okay. I think if we were releasing a three-hour podcast, the, uh, people might start um, either complaining, which would be bad, or wanting a three-hour pub, uh, podcast every time, which would be worse. <laughs> Joe Rogan does it to, somehow. I have to edit this thing, man. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I think I think let's wrap it up there. And uh, next time on Talking Joe, we will be back on ARA, me and Tim, covering issue 277, which is the law and order issue of Untold Tales Arc. And then we'll be back here again for part two of Disavowed, where we will be covering the rest of the arc. So issues two to four of uh, this first arc. So uh, look forward to joining you all then. Thanks yet to Tim for, for your second round out on the show. Thanks for joining us, Jay, and look forward to having you back to talk all things Disavowed uh, next time. Yep, it's been fun. Yes, let's talk comics. <laughs> and uh, you can find us in all of the usual places. Talking Joe, a G.I. Joe podcast on Facebook, Talking underscore Joe on Twitter, Talking Joe Comics, all one word on Instagram, or Talking Joe Comics at Gmail on the email. And, of course, you can also now find us at dun, 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 talkingjoe.co. .uk, our new website. Wow. Nice. Look forward to seeing you there. Where can, uh, where can people find you, Tim? Find me at arealamericanbook.com, facebook.com slash arealamericanbook, uh, and uh, Instagram at arealamericanbook. What about you, Jay? Where can pe- the good people find you? Uh, I'm on Facebook. I do uh, do a lot of G.I. Joe sketches that I post up there a couple times a week usually, so... Uh, if anybody wants to take a look at those, just look for me on Facebook. Cool stuff. Um, we'll have to now. Now that you're officially part of the the, the Talking Joe family, we'll have to see uh, a dedicated thread to your sketches. I think because uh, I know that you started sh- sharing a few of those uh, a couple of months ago. But uh, yeah, yeah. Let's 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 see uh, let's see how you're progressing for the for the rest of the hours. All right, we'll do. Yeah. When all's said and done, you can catch us down the road because we've been talking Joe. And we're all out of Joes. Yeah, that's right, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dude. Laters. Thanks, guys. Thank you.